Well, good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's. We're so glad you've joined us. My name is Jenny. I work here. And especially if you're new and curious, uh, a very warm welcome, and especially to those joining us online. I'm no marketing genius, uh, but I think the U.S. Marines have a highly effective recruitment brand. I'm not sure you're good enough to be a Marine. Discussing the Marine brand in an interview in September, four-star general uh, David Berger talked about how in the 1980s he met a, a Marine gunnery sergeant uh, during his ROTC training. I'd never met a Marine before, but I was instantly drawn to this guy and the way he carried himself. I don't know what it is, but I want that, he remembered. So I approached him and I asked, I'm on a Navy scholarship. Is it possible to switch? He goes, I'm not sure you're good enough. He told me to go away. We're continuing looking at the mission of Jesus, what his work and his mission means for us. And today we heard how Jesus is continuing his recruitment spree. He's staffing up for the work he's come to do. And so far, who he has to show for it, remember it's some fishermen, right? Uh, Peter, James, and John. And today he picks up a tax collector uh, named Levi. And with the recruitment of Levi, his simmering conflict with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, it now clicks up a notch. And Jesus answers their complaints with some of his most memorable but difficult to understand parables, right? Those short little stories about new and old clothes and new and old wine. And so right out of the gate, I want to deal with those parables because I think once they're a bit clearer, we're going to see that in this recruitment strategy of Jesus, we're going to see something sobering about ourselves, sobering, and then something wonderfully encouraging about Jesus. So sobering and encouraging uh, wherever you are on your spiritual journey. So those confusing little parables. I want you to try and picture the scene, okay? Uh, newly recruited Levi uh, is throwing a big party for Jesus. And as a despised tax collector for the hated Roman oppressors, he's socially roughly equivalent to the mafia. Uh, he would have had a lot of money to throw around. So there's singing, there's dancing, there's lots of wine. And in the center is Jesus, reclining, as was the custom, at the table with his new recruits. And hovering on the edges of this party are some of the religious elite, right, the Pharisees, as well as uh, potentially some of John the Baptist's new disciples. And they're intrigued by Jesus. They've been watching him trend in the Galilee region. And while they're not willing to eat uh, with the kind of people that Jesus was clearly willing to, um, they're intrigued. They stay. They want to watch what happens at the party. So as the meal progresses, the Pharisees begin to ask Jesus's new disciples some questions. Like, how often do you guys fast? Jews were meant to fast at least once a year, but the Pharisees fasted twice a week. And the disciples, unable to answer because their mouths are full, they kind of shrug, right? And they look at Jesus. And after saying that when the bridegroom is around, clearly a reference to himself, it's not time for fasting, but rather time for celebration, Jesus then disarms them with this double parable of the old coat and the old wine. 
Jesus also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, it'll be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new wine. But they say the old is good. Well, isn't everybody speechless after that? They don't ask him any more questions, probably because like the rest of us, they have no idea what he's talking about. No one takes cloth from an old coat to fix a new coat. And if Jesus is trying to associate himself with the new wine, he needs to check out the vintages section at the LCBO, right? Because the old wine is way more valuable and prized. For a long time, uh, many Christians have interpreted these two curious parables in a way that I think is problematic. In particular, Christians over the centuries have read them to mean this. Old coat, old wine are symbols of Jewish faith and Jewish law. New coat, new wine uh, symbolize Christian faith and the grace that Jesus brings, with the implication that these two things are incompatible. But there's several problems with this interpretation. To begin with, Jesus did not come to dismantle God's promises to the children of Israel. He came to fulfill and transform those promises. And when he was speaking, there was no Christianity or church to refer to, no new faith for the Jewish faith to be incompatible with. And let's not forget that the promises God made to the Israelites, they stand. They stand today. God's promises to Israel, they stand in the midst of the carnage and the terror that Hamas has inflicted. God grieves the consequences of the sins of Hamas now being inflicted on innocent Israelis and now on innocent Palestinian civilians, right? Babies, both sides. Jesus did not come to dismantle God's promises to Israel. He came to fulfill them. And the last words in that parable that Jesus says is that the old wine is better. So if we're going to interpret it like that, then Jesus is comparing the Jewish faith to 1982 Shadow Lafitte and the gospel to Sandbank Chardonnay. Doesn't make any sense if you interpret it that way. But the fact that the parable doesn't make sense to us indicates that it was probably supposed to make sense to the Pharisees, to whom it was directed. The Jewish Talmud contains a Pharisaical proverb from about the same time period that Jesus was speaking that ties directly to what Jesus said. Uh, this is from the Talmud, roughly the same time period. Do not pay attention to the container, but pay attention to what is in it. There is a new container full of old wine, and here is an old container which does not even contain new wine. Remember, the Pharisees are criticizing who Jesus is recruiting as his disciples. His recruitment strategy is part of what the Pharisees have a problem with. Like the recruits are uneducated. Some of them are crooks. And look at them, stuffing themselves with food. Jesus was answering this critique by pointing out that his new teachings couldn't be received by established students, such as the Pharisees. They shouldn't be critical of the new containers 
that Jesus was recruiting. The new teaching needs uneducated disciples to be properly received, new wine into new wineskins. Basically, Jesus' double parable is telling the Pharisees it's pretty hard to teach an old dog new tricks. They weren't going to be receptive to what he was offering. He knew what was coming. He even alludes in verse 35 to his impending betrayal by these same leaders. But the disciples he was recruiting, the new containers, clearly unacceptable by Pharisaical standards, they were open to what Jesus had to say. All right, how does this connect to us? Well, let's start with the sobering stuff. Well, some of you may be good enough to be Marines. None of us is good enough to be a disciple of Jesus. And frankly, I don't even need to argue my point because if you're spiritually searching this morning, just look around, right? Like you can tell from the existing crop of recruits that God has fantastically low standards. And against the consistent advice of the HR department, God keeps recruiting sinners. It's such a relief. You see, the world is not divided into good people and bad. Such a simplistic view may be the foundation of every Disney movie ever, but good and bad people, it's not Christian categories. Christians don't talk like that. All of us, every single human being is a sinner in different ways. We fall short of God's dreams for our lives, pushing God out of God's rightful place in the center of our lives. Christian faith is the most inclusive faith in the world. We say that everyone is made in the image of God, and we include everyone in the sinner category. No self-righteous holy war permitted. We know that violence only begets violence. Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he died about uh, a decade ago, he grasped this reality. This is one of his most famous quotes. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Jesus comes with a sobering yet totally inclusive message. <laughs> Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's us, every one of us. Uh, whether you've been here for decades or it's your first time, we all get to be included. And churches that are honest about this, that don't try to downplay, like the empirically verifiable fact that every human is sinful, rejects God, hurts one another, basically thinks other people are the problem, right? In my experience, churches that are honest about this are communities that are marked by an increasing degree of humility and sober tenderness towards one another. Humility about our own failings, tenderness towards each other as we all face problems in our lives. There's so many problems in our city the problems in the world, like I mean, they're just writ large. It's sobering. But now to the encouraging. And it's encouraging about Jesus, encouraging about what his work is. You see, Jesus is frank about our sin, but then he offers us his grace, 
his love and his mercy before we even ask for it, before we even think about our need to repent. His grace is there for the receiving. Uh, the Life of Pi, uh, maybe you've read it, it's, it's a novel about a spiritually inquisitive uh, boy. And his father owns a zoo, which gives us some context to understand what happens when the young Pi talks to a Roman Catholic priest about Jesus. Father Martin was very kind. He served me tea and biscuits in a tea set that rattled at every touch. He treated me like a grown-up and told me a story. Or rather, since Christians are so fond of capital letters, a story. And what a story. The first thing that drew me in was disbelief. What? Humanity sins, but it's God's son who pays the price? I tried to imagine my father saying to me, Piscine, a lion slipped into the llama pen today and killed two llamas. Yesterday, another one killed a black buck. Last week, two of them ate the camel. And who's to say for sure who snacked on our golden agouti? The situation's become intolerable. Something must be done. I've decided that the only way the lions can atone for their sins is if I feed you to them. Yes, Father, that would be the right and logical thing to do. Give me a moment to wash up. Hallelujah, my son. What a strange story. I asked Father Martin for another one, one that I might find more satisfying. Surely this religion has more than one story in its bag. Religions abound with stories. But Father Martin made me understand that all the stories before it, and there were many, are simply prologue to the Christians. Their religion had one story. And to it, they came back again and again, over and over. It was story enough for them. We sin, we mess up, and yet God sends his son to die on a cross. So the consequences of our sin don't have to haunt us for eternity. The son of God was subjected to horrific violence. So it is possible to break the cycle of retribution and violence. It can be broken, it can, only by the grace of God. That's the reason Jesus is not just a patch on an old garment, right? He's not simply an add-on to your already busy life, right? Like an activity, like soccer or hockey for your children. Jesus is a whole new garment, a whole new life, a life marked by humility, a life marked by compassion, because you know how much you've been forgiven. And it's a life marked by sacrifice and service of other people, because that's how God has met you in Jesus. And be encouraged. This kind of life, it doesn't result in dour and grim compliance. No, it's a life of celebration. There's eating, there's drinking. Grace is so wonderful. Jesus gave everything for us to have this life. And it's worth giving everything away to have Jesus. Peter, James, and John, they could probably have gone back to their fishing nets if that whole Jesus thing hadn't worked out. But not Levi. After abandoning his Dax booth, the Romans wouldn't have touched him with a 10-foot pole. But he threw a great party, and he never looked back. As you know, we have a rhythm of life here at St. Paul's. It's five ancient spiritual practices that 
create space for Jesus to be welcomed into the mess and complexity of our daily lives, right? Space for Jesus to be celebrated. And because they are the spiritual practices of Jesus, they will help us become more like him. And we think becoming more like Jesus is the best way to impact this city and the world with goodness. The Rhythm of Life workshop that Ben mentioned, it's, it's coming up this Wednesday night. And what it'll do is it'll help you examine which of your old rhythms need to be transformed so that you can take on some new wine that Jesus brings. You can sign up online. There are no perfect people, but there is a perfect God, a holy God. And as long as God's standards stay super low, each of us can be recruits, right? Recruits in that lifelong journey of learning how to follow Jesus. New wine being poured into new wineskins. Thanks be to God. Amen.